0: Under, under the internet. Why? Tubes. The internet is tubes. Connections, to consumers, massive commercial purposes. Big truck. Long distance is tubes. Tangled tubes. All a series of tubes. Your own personal internet. The world wide web. The internet is tubes. Tubes tubes can be filled. And
1: hello for all that listen my name is chad syntax and welcome back to talking the tech i'm poking the smut broadcasting into the grand void of space and time and the internet uh that doesn't mean anything everyone's got a cycle uh the serpent eats its tail
0: it's all connected time is a flat circle we all come and we die life is but a sandwich there's a beginning a middle and an end fuck I'm having an existential crisis because i watched cyberpunk 2077 edge runners um yeah that just oh man what a good, what a show fuck god damn
1: i, I kind of want to play the game now <laughs> I've, I've owned the game like twice over in different libraries and shit i just heard it was ass and i could never uh went to unlaunch. and i've heard it's gotten better and I kind of like the vibe of cyberpunk a lot more than The Witcher. And I never really could get into The Witcher. It's just so many menus and so much shit. and Oh, man. It's just a lot. Uh, I, I've i tried, like, four different times to break into The Witcher. I just didn't have the time. At, whenever I tried to play it, I just didn't, like, have the time. I'd be like, all right, well, I gotta go, like, you know, do something else. Pause, come back, you know, a couple days later. Be like, wait, what, what was the button to, like, you know, do the fire again? <laughs> When when do I do the fire again? What sword is for who? Uh, What's the button to get on the horse? What's the button to call the horse?
0: Uh, Scratch his head. Do I want to sit here and play Gwent instead? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so
1: uh, now I feel like playing the fucking game because the the anime was really good. Um, And it's kind of a story that makes me think about how, like, you know, makes you feel small. Or maybe it made me feel small. You know, just like, oh, I'm just another, you know, watching these characters just fucking live and die. You know, that's kind of the whole point is that, like, you know, everyone just fucking dies. Or maybe that's not the point. That's kind of my draw from it. It's that, uh, everyone goes to the same thing. Everyone has an end, right? And the same thing happens for software. There's always end-to-life shit.
0: One day, GraphQL might die and no one will ever use it. It's a reality we must live with. Same thing with my sequel. In all your favorite languages, they may one day die. They probably will die. One day. Everything seems to die. You know? Languages die? Maybe. I mean, like, some languages are just, like, fucking gone. Like, everyone forgot them. The culture was obliterated. Um, gone forever. You know? Uh, but...
1: Some languages like that are dead, like not spoken, like Latin, still exist technically. I mean, we teach it; we have knowledge of it. We just don't actively use it. I think perhaps the same will happen for a lot of. I mean, some programming languages are kind of already there. They're there for like you know academic purposes or for historical purposes. I don't think there's a whole lot of folks out there building new shit in Fortran (laughs) or COBOL or like uh, you know. But but then again, people are still using C, and I think C will probably stick around for quite some time, but anyway, um, I, I said GraphQL at the beginning, because I wanted to easily uh, segue transition into the first, uh, you know, intro here about GraphQL. Uh, if you don't know what GraphQL is, um, shit, how do you do it quickly? Um, if you don't, <laughs> fuck, uh, if you know how requests work, right, you have a get, which is getting information, and a post, which is creating information kind of doing it down here i'm not going to mention the other methods so just bear with me for that now usually with a rest rest sort of uh setup what's the what does rest even stand for i always forget because i i it's like at this point it's more of like a regular ass noun uh you know than it is like you know like an acronym you know what i'm saying it's like oh yeah let's make a rest endpoint. State transfer. Okay, whatever. Basically, you hit an endpoint and you tell it to do something. Bottom line, right? Now you either add a verb to that, where you're getting the information, or you're like you, know, you tell it, you telling, you're making a request for information, you're making a request to create information, etc. With GraphQL, you're doing the exact same thing, except there's a, a language to it, and you kind of only do things in posts to start off with. You can do gets. There's a whole There's a whole extra layer to doing it all with gets, but for for the easiest way possible to explain it, use posts and you post a query. Instead of saying like, you know, hey, get me uh, slash books gets me all the books, you can make a query that says gets me all the books with only ID and title. Because the difference usually between a REST endpoint, a GraphQL endpoint, is that when you hit as the requester to a REST endpoint, You don't get to control what comes back. Now, with GraphQL, you can control what comes back to a degree. You could say, like, hey, because of the component I'm rendering, I only need the ID and the title of all of the books in our first 100 books in our database or whatever, right? Now, that can be made into a query of a particular language that has to pass a certain syntax that is automatically documented. Um... And is just really developer friendly, and is also better for the client side because you kind of think about it. If you had to send back, you know, fifty different key-value pairs uh, for a book object in a REST endpoint, when you only in reality in the client side only ever used three of them, like title, subtitle, and page number or something, page count, um, then like, what's the point of you know? Then you have to make another REST endpoint called, like, books-slim or something like that, you know, that only returns some things. Or you have to add kind of your own little querying uh, to it, to your REST endpoint, where you add, like, a question mark, like, fields equals title comma subtitle in order for the REST endpoint to reduce the amount of data it's sending back. But in GraphQL, it's already kind of built in. And if you want to add or remove fields, it's at your prerogative with GraphQL. and as a developer, you can kind of introspect the schema and understand, like, you know, what's coming from where, what's doing what, what the certain types are. Um, you can use that as you're developing, being like, how do I, like, you know, what data is available? Like, instead of having to go, like, look into the backend's code or read the backend's documentation, you can just open up, like, a, an interface. That's annoying. You open up an interface uh in your web browser that just kind of gives you a little slide out and tells you what all the uh all the types are and what the all well, the mutations, all the queries. You know, you don't have to bother your backend guy for shit because it's all right there. You know? Uh anyway, so
0: it it's great
1: GraphQL. Um it was originally made by Facebook, because if you imagine your Facebook, you know, you have like 30 different kinds of like the same widget that renders an avatar in different ways, and you probably only want to render the least amount of data possible to render that component, because you have to think when you're at the scale of Facebook loading for billions of users, you have to get extra creative when it comes to load, the amount of data you're loading, because, you know, you have to imagine billions of users equals, more than the United States, which is most people uh, on older phones. (laughs) In the United States, we tend to have the newest, latest, and greatest phones, uh, in the Western world at least, Um, in some parts of the Eastern world as well, but places like South America or uh, Africa, not so much. From my knowledge, I could be wrong. I just remember, like, reading an article about Argentina or something and saying, like, how you know, the majority of people there back then were on Android 2 phones when, like, most of the people, uh, most of the phones that, you know, I was working with at the time were, like, at least on, like, Android 4, you know? Um... because, like, the phones are cheaper, the older phones are cheaper, right, and you want to make sure that you're, you're only requesting data you need, because then those phones don't spend so long, you know, having to process that much data, it's just good for everything, it reduces network speed, especially if you're in countries that have shitty internet, or, uh, really slow internet, you ever notice how, like, Facebook is always better at loading than some dipshit website, you know, like, because Facebook actually worked on optimizing for your crappy situation because they're they're crazy. They want all your data all the time even if you're have one bar of data. And in South America, um on an Android 2 phone, uh, Facebook's going to try their darnest to make their widgets load with the least amount of data possible. Um with the most like pared down components so they're not rendering big images and such because they don't want to like clog up the amount of data that's coming through to your tiny little pipe. Your tiny little tube, your series of tube, your tube is real small in that scenario. Okay. And uh, the internet needs to flow through it. Um, and we can't give you too much internet because that'll be a bad experience for you. And then we don't get to steal your data. That's what, that's at least probably what Facebook was thinking. Right. Now, I see all these things are great. We use it all the time. I use it at work. Most of our like endpoints are going to be used by developers. Um, makes the most sense to do. Uh, that, especially with client-side applications. Let me, let me rephrase that. It, it, API, these, GraphQL works really well for like client-side uh, applications because you can always decide how much data you want, get, want to get back. If you're in a back-end, um, sometimes that doesn't matter too much to you and you'd rather have the simplicity of REST um, and the solidity of REST because a lot of random ass things can go wrong in GraphQL or, or be different or, or, or whatever. Uh, Because there's just a bunch of different packages and different ways to do things, and there's schema stitching, and like introspection can have problems, and uh, I've ran into a bunch of weird-ass issues with GraphQL, is what I'm saying. And it can be a lot more complex to implement on the back end, because you have to think... The the best thing about GraphQL is how you can have a hairy schema, which means that you can have a book, uh, you can request a query that, or you can make a query that requests all books, and on that each book you have an author, and on each author you have a book, and on each book like you indent like four or five times. And the GraphQL allows you to do that. You can make recursive stuff, you know, like and make it so that like every book has an author, and every author has a book. Meaning that I make a requer- query for all books and have authors, or I can make a query for an author and ha- and for all the books of that author, all like within very you know just an indent in in the actual query that I'm writing. Um, but the problem is is that if you do that too many times and too many indents, you can end up like totally borking your backend system because your backend system. Um, if they don't have something set up to measure the complexity of the query that you're sending or the length of the query that you're sending, then your backend's going to execute whatever the frontend's given it, meaning that a malicious actor, if they so wanted, could make a massive query that has many indents and that essentially translates to many joins for our database in the backend or just compounds the amount of work the backend might need to do or the amount of requests the backend might need to make, actually. Because sometimes, a lot of times, from my experience, <laughs> some, you know... These uh, GraphQL endpoints are usually just like wrapping REST calls or they're wrapping uh, API calls to AWS or whatever, but they're providing a nice clean interface for many different clients and anything from like apps, you know, mobile apps to web apps to desktop apps. You know, you can have all kinds of different data being requested for different, all different kinds of scenarios. It's super great. Um, big fan of GraphQL. But like I said, If you don't have these, if you don't have like limits in place or complexity and length and making sure that like the query you're sending isn't like going to totally like cause uh, like, you know, book to on author on book on author on book on author. You're know you joining the author table to the book table to the author table to the book table, you know, screwing some shit up. Or perhaps like, you know, you just don't cache anything. and, And sometimes like you can make a lot of queries and, you know, can't can't be good. And like if you don't cache anything, this is what I was talking about the gets before posts are not cacheable by a CDN. In most cases, for, from my experience, it's usually only gets. Um, which means that like, if you want to leverage a CDN, a content delivery network, aka CloudFront or CloudFlare or something like that, like you want that request and that response for that query to be on cached like, at the edge, that's probably going to need to be a get. And like, to, do, to set that up in GraphQL can be a pain in the ass and shit. Um, so if you implement no caching, you can get screwed, because every request is a post, which means it's going past the CDN and it's always hitting your server in your one region that you're running in. And so you're just, you know, totally skipping the CDN part, um, which is bad for performance on the client side even further. So you might end up, like, screwing yourself if you're not paying close enough attention to your response times and shit, you know? Anyway, um, I ran through a whole lot. I wanted to say some things about how, like, you know... I have this love-hate relationship, you know. Like I just said, like I, like kind of what I just said. I guess I uh, got to the point, which is like you can write queries that can bork your stuff on the back end. Sometimes we're just wrapping, just wrapping REST calls, so it's kind of lame anyway, you know. But the hairiness of the graph cannot be, you know. You want your, you want your graph hairy, okay? And it's really helpful if it's hairy. Um, it's it's a great technology, but one day it may die. <laughs> Um and and the thing is with having a query language, like it's very ubiquitous and understood. Um you can uh always just discover and explore the schema, and then even that you can plug in more tools to things to understand, like you know, in datadog or other uh you know metric calculators uh, like apollo engine i'm not sure if that's still the thing Uh, i think apollo studios replaced that now but you know you can have product there's there's software offerings out there that can plug into these queries and just just ascertain certain information right You could say like oh it took like you know 0.06 seconds for it to load the book part of the query then it took 0.012 seconds to load the author part of the query because it's hitting different database calls and kind of discern that because like there's a graph involved and then you know it That graph has to be parsed and like when it makes it into the back end, it had you know there's certain metrics that could be attached to those certain lifecycle events of GraphQL. And like that, you get a whole lot more information out of that than like, you know, get slash books. You know? Um, there's way more middleware things you can do, and I don't know, it's a lot more extensible. It's becoming a really uh powerful tool for front ends, really worth learning. Um, but it takes a lot of effort to do correctly. Um, especially to scale it, and then even to go further than that, to scale for, like, an entire organization using GraphQL, because you have to imagine, like, if everyone's going to be using GraphQL, we should try to, like, you know, put it in the same endpoint so we don't have to, like, worry about um, duplicating uh, work in a bunch of places. Well, how about we just, like, have one gateway that, like, pulls everybody else's schemas in? Well, then the schemas can't conflict, and we have teams that made the same type of, you know... ID <laughs> you know twice and that just breaks everything um, yeah it's just it's it could be a total clusterfuck is what I'm getting at uh, to to make a GraphQL truly scalable at this point um, perhaps one day in the future it won't be that bad I mean with with rest it's just like you know you just add more nodes and you're probably fine <laughs> add more more pods more pods more pods that's an old meme more dots from World of Warcraft all right, moving on. Um, I'm just going to be done with the will times um, now. And we're going to talk a little bit about uh, questions. Let's see. This question is, what does a junior dev need to know nowadays? Back in my day, I had core programming knowledge, language, framework, ORM, combo, HTML, CSS, JavaScript, jQuery, SQL. But these tools got started my junior dev, dev career. If I were to start today, what would I need? Same type of shit, different day, my friend. Where you learned probably some lamp shit um, with like SQL and PHP. Isn't
0: that what he said? Something about PHP.
1: Language framework, or whatever. I'm guessing it was PHP or Ruby on Rails, or you know, maybe something older than that. But it's the same shit, except it's got the name of MERD or Mean. It used to be called, it used to be the Mean Stack. That was back when Angular was beating React. Oh, those were the glory months. The Glory Months. We were all so hyped. Wow man, when it, when they first released their plans for like Angular 2, like the Angular 1 community shat their pants. Like everyone was like, we hate this syntax. And then they're like, we've heard you, we're redoing everything in TypeScript. And as they were sitting there, you know, working, taking their particular time, making their framework work in TypeScript, React.js took the fuck off. Oh boom! Ah ba-ba-boom. Fucking JavaScript. And then now everyone's trying to get their shit on TypeScript with React and it's a pain in the ass. <laughs> I gotta admit, working in the Angular ecosystem is nice because everything's our baseline TypeScript. You don't have to worry about all that fucking bullshit. Anyway, the mean stack was Mongo, Express, Angular, and Node. The MERN stack is Mongo Express React and Node. Same shit. Um when you talk about Mongo is your database, aka SQL. Um your ORM is uh, Mongoose, which is kind of like how you use MongoDB in the first place. The Node is your lang- uh, language slash framework. Then you have, uh, ex- you know, is- Node is the runtime of JavaScript in the back end, essentially. So that would be replacing the language slash, this language part, you know, Node.js, the, the PHP part, so to speak. Um, and then you would have uh, the express part, which is like actually running the server. Um, well, that's the framework part of it. Um, well, one, that's the back-end framework part of it. Then there's React, which is the front-end framework part of it, which is kind of the replacement of JavaScript plus jQuery um, and HTML and CSS all in one, really. It's kind of like the front-end framework, the back-end framework, the back-end runtime, and the database. That's what people learn these days. So, I mean, similar to back then, you had the back-end runtime, which is PHP. You had the back-end framework, which is WordPress or some other shit or Laravel, whatever the fuck. You had your uh, your front end, which is HTML, CSS, and JavaScript, and then you had your front end framework, which is jQuery. Except it really wasn't a front end framework. It was well, it was front end library, I guess would be more apt, but it was a collection of functions uh, using a nifty dollar sign that really confused the absolute shit out of a lot of beginners. Like, well, what's the dollar sign? Oh, God, what's that? How come I don't have that? Where do I get the dollar sign? Okay, like, <laughs> jQuery wasn't already present in the document. They were fucked. Um, anyway, yeah, so that's kind of what people learn nowadays uh, to get started as quickly as possible. Some variation of that with other languages exists, like Ruby on Rails is just all of that together, sort of speak. Uh, saying, you know, same with, like, Python and um uh, Django is kind of like all of that. Uh, I mean, I think you just like plug in MySQL would be you have to choose a backend to go with that, right? You can still replace MongoDB with SQL. Node can Node can talk to any ba- any uh any um you know, database. There's a library to talk to all of them if you want, you know, connect to Redis if you want, connect to MySQL if you want. But Mongo is Really easy to teach because it's document store. So you're just like, here's your JSON object that works in the front end and also the back end and then also in the database and it's all easy. Versus like if you had to like, you know, teach someone an ORM of how to like, okay, on top of like using having to learn what JSON is like, here's also having to learn like SQL, which is a totally different syntax and all that stuff. Mongo is like, here's JSON objects. You're working with the same shit. You're you're working on the back end, on the front end. It's very, it's easier to teach because it's all one language. You know, it's a really good way to start. Honestly, like, you know, for web developers nowadays, you have to just learn JavaScript and then, like, the things that go around it. You don't have to worry too much about, like, uh, SQL, I guess. I mean, like, eventually you'll, you'll have to. Um, I'm sure that somebody will ask you an interview question, you know, like, what's the benefit of a relational database or something like that, and you have to know that answer. But, you know, that that's usually how people get started. You can get started on the same, what you listed here, you know, Ruby on Rails, HTML, CSS, jQuery. You know, you can get started on that too. Um, I think the principles of which are are important. Uh, Unfortunately, it's like when people are learning, they only get taught one thing, and then like they just don't like. I see the parallels because I've done PHP, I've done Ruby, I've done Python, I've done JavaScript. Um, You know, I can see the forest, the trees a bit because I've I've worked in all of these things. I can see the. It's like, you know, it's kind of like going between languages and people say, like, oh, what, you know, the syntax? Same thing kind of works with full stack. It's kind of like I can recognize the database part of the stack, the back end part of the stack pretty easily and kind of ascertain what's going on there. But, you know, there's there's a whole lot more that, you know, goes into it per language because, you know, runtimes are different and scaling is different and running servers is different. And on that front, to be honest, I only have to really have ever worried about node servers. In my, the point of when I was at my career uh, in the back end slash DevOps world um, back when I was doing PHP and Ruby, I was just uh, I was just away from that. I was just a developer. You know, when you're a junior developer, no one teaches you fucking shit about DevOps. No one teaches you fucking shit. Oh, that's a good thing. Maybe I should teach young people DevOps. That'd be fun or do something along those lines, because like literally they don't teach you a gosh dang thing. Or at least, like, the core concepts of, like, why DevOps exists. And, like, you know, it's one of the big jobs that's in demand. People
0: always need SREs and shit. Um, good ones, at least, for Christ's sake. There are a lot of fuckhead SREs out there. Fuck. Anyway. <sighs> how did I get onto that? Um, Learning the DevOps part. Is something that no one will ever teach you. It's something you should probably look into
1: at some point. But like, you know, it's something you can only ever really learn on the job. Because like, I mean, you can, well, that's not true. You can learn this kind of back end uh, DevOps shit on the job. Or you can learn it in certificates and then kind of fumble the way, your way around uh, in real life. Uh, working underneath the shadow of a senior SRE that actually knows what the fuck is going on. It's just like the cloud is such a fucking web dude. There's, there's so much, like there are fucking hundreds of services in AWS and like all of them like work so fucking differently and shit. It's a lot to know and a lot to learn to know. And then like, you know,
0: uh, just, uh, I'll quit ranting about this. Let's just move on. we we'll us just cut this and nip this one. All right. DevOps is hard. Bottom line. End of story. Okay. What are the best practices for front-end performance using
1: React? Could you indicate slash report to me good practices aiming at performance that you used on the front-end using React.js? Uh, yes, there are a couple of things. Depending on what kind of app, if you're only in like a, a pure front-end React-type situation, um, let, let's go with that, for example. Um, you have a purely single-page app with React. You want to send over um like literally the 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 most minimal amount of javascript to get started then defer as much as possible um and lazy load as much as possible um and you can tell you're doing this correctly by uh using light the tool lighthouse in your uh in your browser and usually that that tool um it's also like something you can just google it lighthouse um and that will usually tell you the things that are kind of fucked about your uh your setup there. They'll also probably tell you to do things that I'm gonna tell you right now, which is like, you know, minify your shit and uh, defer your requests and lazy load your images and load your images in the right size. Um, I mean, there's just a lot that kind of goes into front-end performance and caching. Caching is very important. Like, you wanna leverage CDN as much as possible for the front-end, no matter what framework you're using. But going past that point, there's also performance involved with React itself the way that you render components or you know the way that you write components that render things or render cuz you don't want to render too many nodes you don't want to re-render a whole lot um, and you don't want to like do prop drilling that of those in in that case the props change all the time because that causes lots of re renders, and then you also don't want to, you know, have re renders trigger, uh, you know, requests that trigger re renders and stuff and get really messy. At least all those things I just mentioned, you can still do if you have the correct things in place. You know, um, you can make requests that cause renders that cause requests that cause renders. You just have to do it right um, using frameworks and such, and, and, and using context or Redux or some sort of memory store where like not everything you do triggers a re-render, okay? Or, you know, not everything you do is like uh, rendering out hundreds and hundreds of spans or divs. Like the amount of elements you stick into the DOM matters. The amount of calculation the CSS needs to do matters. The amount of data that you load into the front end, uh, like from just data, like JSON data from the back end matters because the more, the more RAM you're going to take up, dog. A lot of front-end developers, they just don't fucking, like, realize, like, how much data that just goes over the wire is, like, really freaking important, especially, like, when you do, like, the 3G, you know, Android 2 phone test, and that's kind of what Lighthouse does, actually. Remember when I was talking about that before? Google worries about that shit, too, when you got billions of fucking users, right? You know, they make sure that Google loads well on an Android 2 phone in Timbuktu. You should, too, buddy, and they gave you the, this fucking Lighthouse tool to help your ass out. And what's always annoying is that Lighthouse always reports that, like, Google Analytics is, like, has a shitty cache header. <laughs> and it's like, hey, the Google Analytics could have a bigger cache header. It's only 60 days. You should make it a lot more. And, you're like, great, thanks. I'll
0: call Google and ask them to do that. Dickheads. Um, yeah. Um, there's other parts to, like, the build process, such as,
1: like, minifying uh and deduping uh the amount of like initial data that you send over in like the html document or like preloading like what people will do in order to get a flash of, not to avoid a flash of unstyled content is like figure out what they're or will they initially render pull out the styles for what they're about to initially render and include them in the head so that like that when the user like requests that route they're gonna get a page and that html document whatever's in that html document including like inline JSON or CSS is going to be immediately available for the user to use and render and read. So you want the critical, it's called critical CSS or critical JavaScript, and it's the stuff you want to load first that usually kind of bootstraps your app to load other stuff. Now, usually, like, you would have kind of, like, in a a React, a purely single-page app scenario, you'd kind of, like, load with an empty body and, or load with a body that just has, like, uh, the initial structure, the initial skeleton with some loading spinners, and then once your JavaScript loads, you can lazy load the images, lazy load the components, lazy load the requests. Slowly pop the things in. Only load the JavaScript, the CSS, and the um, and the data that you need through good, you know, maybe using GraphQL and also good code splitting practices. Um, code splitting is very important. You only want to load the JavaScript and the CSS you want on that specific page. Um, it's it's just really a big subject to go into front end performance in general. There's lots of tools, lots of ways you can measure it. Um, the easiest way is to look up, like, web page Speed Test or Lighthouse. Use those tools, and that's kind of, like, the, the first step. And then, like, figuring out how to, like, work and get those scores up is the hard part because sometimes it requires, like, adding different workflows to, like, repurpose images into multiple formats or high DPI versions or, you know, when, you know sometimes you have to polyfill JavaScript for older browsers or, or for other, other features that you need. Um, and that adds weight and load. Sometimes you're using a third-party library that's way too big and you need to, like, somehow defer that to only load when needed. Or, You know, these are all things that go into front-end performance. Maybe that could be another episode, but I think that I'm about to be sucked back into my genie bottle here because I'm, like, running out of time. Uh, oh, no, the music started. The ritual is starting. Oh no, I'm being sucked back into
0: my tubes. I got to see that it. The internet is tubes. Tubes, tubes in the field. And if they're filled, the internet is going to be delayed. A series of tubes. The internet is providers. The internet is consumers. The internet is you and me. The internet is not a big truck. People are streaming to a whole book at a time. Maybe there is a place for the internet. And again, the internet is a series of Tubes.
1: Hey, where'd you look at you? You made it through the whole thing. Congratulations. That's awesome. If you feel like feeding me material, go ahead and email me at query at ttpspodcast.com. If you want to be a guest on the show and discuss software engineering in all of its forms, uh, contact me at guest at ttpspodcast.com. If you happen to want to sponsor the show or just give me money for no reason, that's business at ttpspodcast.com. And then just ttpspodcast.com. Go there and see episodes and look at the website I made for it. Yeah. All those emails go to me. Uh, It's a one-man show over here. Uh, It's all an illusion.
0: But I like the folders that the different emails make, so...